Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is Self Brain Surgery Saturday. I'm so excited around here to be with you today. Um, hey, if you're new, we got a lot of new listeners. So we switched over to Substack a few months ago, and the, the listeners have really grown. And we, we were downloaded in 110 or more countries last month, or last week, rather. Um, and so wherever you are in the world, please know that Lisa and I and Tata, we are excited to have you with us and grateful and honored that you are listening. And I hope that this podcast is helpful to you. OK, so we talk about a lot of different things in this podcast, and I want to give you just kind of an overview today about this idea that we call self brain surgery. OK, self brain surgery is just my way because I'm a brain surgeon. So it's, it's my way of explaining to you how important it is to understand how you think and why you think the ways that you think and what that thinking actually does in terms of your body, your biochemistry, your neuroscience, um, and what it does to your genes and your cells and your generations and the kids and the people around you. Like what, what happens when you learn how to change the way you think? Or are we just victims of our baseline neurochemistry? I want you to understand that. And so we're going to talk a lot about, on this podcast, a lot about the idea that I call self-brain surgery. And I have a new book coming out in July. Now, I should have started by saying, if you clicked on this accidentally, or if you find yourself listening on your friend's car uh, radio or whatever, I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'm a neurosurgeon. Okay, I, I do brain surgery and spine surgery for a living, some peripheral nerve surgery like carpal tunnel release and those kinds of things also. But I found out a while back, a few years ago, when I became one of those people that wasn't just prescribing stuff to other people, but who needed it for myself, and we lost our son, I realized I wasn't just dealing with people who were struggling with hard things in their lives, like brain tumors and aneurysms and trauma, but I was one of those people too, because I was dealing with grief and loss and pain. And then I saw, as I looked at the way that people live their lives and how they react and respond to trauma and to tragedy and to other massive things, as Lisa and I call it, I learned that I was one of those people too. And there are groups of response patterns that you can see if you observe the world. There are at least four different ways that people respond to these massive things that happen in their lives. And so I began to study them. And while I was studying them with the intention of writing my book, which turned out to be I've Seen the End of You, which went on to win the 2021 Memoir Biography of the Year and the Christian Book Awards, that book I started as a way to try to help people understand how they were going to respond and what they could do next after big things happened in their lives. And while I was in the middle of preparing that book is when Mitch died in August of 2013, our 19-year-old son who was stabbed to death. And we lost Mitch. And I became one of those suffering people. I became one of those people, as the prophet Isaiah said, who was in the furnace of suffering. And I realized that what I thought I knew about how to help other people when they were facing hard things didn't turn out to be true. That a lot of the things that I thought would be helpful weren't helpful. A lot of the things that I thought people would would say that I would say Christian things that would be beneficial to people turned out not to be helpful. And I was wounding people instead of helping them. I was receiving wounds from well-intentioned people. And so I learned that there's a path and a process of how you can process these big things and how you can change your mind. And in changing your mind, you can change your life and you actually can find hope and healing and maybe even happiness again after these massive things. And then I realized that everybody has a massive thing, or for some people, it's a series of many or lesser 
traumas that feels like death by a thousand cuts, like the old Chinese torture method, Ling Chi, the death by a thousand cuts. And some people's lives aren't ever one big massive thing, but a whole series of smaller things that cause trauma and trigger and triggering and, and tragedy and, and difficult ways to live your life. And so I thought I'm going to learn how to help people understand how to change their mind because changing your mind is the first step to finding hope again. Hope is the first dose in the treatment plan that I put together in my new book that comes out in July, which I called hope is the first dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. And so if you're new around here, I just want to spend today and give you the, the, Genesis, the beginnings, the basics of self-brain surgery. I want to give you just this little idea, that this, this, this understanding, this 30,000-foot view of what self-brain surgery is all about. It has some scripture in it. It's got some neuroscience in it. It's got some practical application of things that we learn. But it all starts with a, with a motto, with a mantra, an oath, if you will, like we learn in medical school. And in med school, it's first no harm. And in cell brain surgery, it's a variation of that that I came up with that I want to share with you. So today, we're going to give you the 30,000-foot view of what self-brain surgery is, friend. And I want to invite you to this new organization, the professional organizations that I'm part of. Every, every group has an organization. And in neurosurgery, there are two. There are the, Associate, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. And if you're a board-certified neurosurgeon, you can become one of, a member of one of those groups. But the, the Society of Neurological Surgeons... The society is a more elite group. It's only people are only invited if they're department chairman or big, well-known neurosurgeons who've accomplished a lot in the profession. I'm not a member of the Society of Neurological Surgeons because I've never been an academic program head. I've never been a chairman of a department. But the society is an elite group. It's, it's hard to get into. There are criteria, and, and, and you have to be a certain type of neurosurgeon to be invited into the Society of Neurological Surgeons. But I'm here to tell you today, friend, that you don't have to be in some kind of elite super status to be invited into the Society of Self-Brain Surgeons. All you have to have to qualify for the Society of Self-Brain Surgeons is a brain, and I know you have one or you wouldn't be listening to this, and you have to have a willingness to learn how to operate that brain more effectively and efficiently so that you can navigate this sometimes hard life in a way that lands on hope and allows you to find peace and happiness and real healing and movement forward again in your life, no matter what happens. So if you're interested in becoming a member of the totally made up and completely free Society of Self-Brain Surgeons, I want you to stick with me and listen to this podcast because today we're going to give you the 30,000 foot view of what self-brain surgery is and what it's all about, what you can expect from it and what you can hope to learn and gain from it. We're going to do that in preparation for getting to Hope is the First Dose as it comes out in July so that we can all be ready for that book because I think it's going to make a difference in your life, friend. I really do. It's the most important thing I've ever written or done. And self-brain surgery is the beginning of it. And I want you to have this ability to look into the future and know that no matter what massive things may be lurking out there, that you're going to be ready because you've got the treatment plan. And you're going to be ready to change your mind and change your life. And the good news is, as Lisa always tells us, you you can be ready because you can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. 
you can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Okay, so I'm super excited to have you with me today, friend. I'm recording this at about 5 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. I normally get these episodes done ahead of time. Today's Saturday. It is April 8th. We are smack in the first third of Action April. And so I think it's a perfect time to get a high-level look at what self-brain surgery really is. Let me tell you a story. Um, a few years ago, back in Wyoming, I got a phone call on my way home from work one day. And it was a guy named Jack Phillips. Jack is the um, father of a boy who died of liver failure. His name was Robbie. And I told his story in the book I've seen the interview. Jack was introduced to me by a guy named Eli, who was one of my patients in Alabama when we lived there. Eli had a glioblastoma. And it presented with a really weird thing called Gerstmann syndrome where he couldn't understand metaphor and he couldn't understand left and right or math. And he was an engineer, so he had a real sensitivity to understanding that he was struggling with complex mathematics. And that's what ultimately led to the diagnosis of his brain tumor, really subtle neurologic finding that most people would not have noticed. But because he routinely did math that required high level precision, he was making tiny mistakes at three or four decimal points of equations in his head. And he knew something was wrong. And he didn't give up until he figured it out. It was a brain tumor. And Eli turned out to be the longest survivor I ever had of glioblastoma. I had over 10 years before he finally had a recurrence and died. And I thought maybe he was going to be the guy that really actually beat that disease. But I got a phone call on my way home from work one night, and it was Jack Phillips. Eli had introduced me to Jack a few months after Mitch died. Um, He called me. I saw him in the office, actually, and gave him a good, clear bill of health, and he'd had a a long run of not having a glioblastoma recurrence, and he was doing great, and he was getting married, and his life was really, really doing well. And I was super hopeful that Eli was going to be this guy that beat glioblastoma. But one time when I saw him in the office, he said, "Uh, Doc, my brother-in-law's little boy died. Um, Robbie died of liver failure, and and Jack is just not handling it well, and he's losing his faith, and he's spiraling out of control, and he's struggling with his life, and him and my sister are having a hard time, and would you be willing to talk to him? And at that time, I was like, dude, it's only been a few months since I lost my son. What do do I have to say to another father? And he said, well, you're still on your feet, and you still seem like you're learning how to smile again, and you're working, and, and maybe you can just give him some hope. And that was the first time I ever really was encouraged to share something or try to be there for another grieving father. And so Jack and I had met, and he was really um, happy to talk to me, or I wouldn't say happy, he was willing to talk to me. But at the time, he was just really struggling with faith and doubt and these things we think we know, as I talked about in the book. And after we talked that day in the coffee shop in Auburn, 
Jack left, and I really didn't feel like I'd helped him any. Um, he said something to me that stuck with me. He was like, you know, you're going to get old, and I'm going to get old. But our little boys are always going to be, your your boy's going to be 19, my son's going to be 5. And it's never going to change. Like th- this, this reality that we're living in of having lost our sons is never going to change. Someday you'll be an old man, and Mitch is still going to be 19. And you tell me how to reconcile that with God caring about us. And then maybe we can talk again. And he walked out. And I was just kind of broken. I was, I, I was trying to help him, but I didn't think I'd help him. But then two other times since that conversation in Auburn, way back in 2013, I've heard from, from Jack. One time I just got a ding on my cell phone. Lisa and I were sitting on the, tele, on, on the couch watching TV one night in Wyoming after we'd moved. And the, the cell phone dinged. And I looked down. And it was a picture of Jack's feet and shadow, and he was standing over Robbie's grave in the cemetery. And the text was hopeless and dark, and and he said something like, um, "You know, you you may believe in God, but but my belief in God is buried in this hole with my son." It was really cryptic and just sounded desperate and hopeless, and I was worried about him maybe being suicidal or something, but he wouldn't answer my call and he never responded to my text, and I just didn't know how he was doing. And then a while later. I got another text. It was just random. And it said, I feel a little better today. And so I had these two messages, two encounters with Jack Phillips after I met with him in the coffee shop. One was hopeless and one was a little bit more hopeful. And I never heard from him again. It was years later that I was driving home and my phone rang. And I said, hello, it's Lee Warren. I didn't recognize the number, but it was Jack. And he said, um, Eli died. <laughs> Eli Bailey had had a recurrence of his glioblastoma after he'd gotten married. You know, he'd finally uh, finally got his life on track. He'd gotten up enough hope to propose to the girl and get married. And he thought he was cured. He had 10 years of, of living glioblastoma free. And then the thing came roaring back and killed him in just a, a few months. And Jack called to tell me that. And he was crying and I was crying. And, and he said, I just don't understand why it feels like God has singled out our family to hurt. It just, it seems like he singled us out and it's not acceptable. <laughs> I said, you're right. It's not acceptable. And I didn't know what to say. We had a long talk about how he wanted to be able to find faith like his wife had held on to. And he wanted to be able to find faith like Eli and his wife had held on to. And, and we had a long talk and I just didn't seem like I was helping him at all. I, I couldn't put my fingers on what he needed. But after we talked, I realized um, it, it affected me. Like I, I had somehow hung some hope on Eli surviving this tumor. I'd somehow held on to the idea that he was going to make it, and he didn't. And it just kind of put me back in that place where I had all these doubts and fears, and I was, and I was worried about it. And we got off the phone, and I was just kind of, kind of stewing in that. And the very next day, I was walking down the hall at the hospital, and there's this window in this long hall. The window looked out over a cemetery across the road from the hospital. I always thought that was kind of odd that you would have a graveyard right next to the hospital. It doesn't seem very hopeful uh, or it doesn't seem very on brand for a hospital to be that close to a cemetery. But he was standing there, this guy named Carl. Um, I called him Carl. It's not his real name just for his protection. So Carl was standing, and he was staring out the window, looking out over that graveyard. And I walked up, and I said, Hey, Carl, how you doing? And he turned, and I noticed that his face was kind of swollen, and his eyes were red, and he looked like he had a little a little tear on his cheek. And, and um, he's this big, 
big guy, big cowboy type guy, um, physician like me, but um, not a neurosurgeon. But this big, strong guy, and he's crying. And he's looking out the window. And it's cold, um, you know, cold look on his face, like he was chewing on something hard. And I said, "What's going on?" And he said, um, "My little girl's buried out there in that cemetery." today's her birthday and I was just thinking about her and just looking out over there and watching her grave and watching the sun on the gravestone and and, uh, and I was just I didn't know what to say I was like I'm sorry I, I didn't know that happened what happened and he said she'd fallen off a horse and got kicked in the head right in front of him when she was eight years old and he did CPR and tried to resuscitate her but she never took another breath and she died from that head injury in his backyard like right right in his house right, right outside his house and that had been years before he said it had been 20 years. And he said, I'm, I am I became an old man the day my little girl died. I was only 35, but I was I was old that day. And I realized that you know, Mitch had been dead for only a few years at that point. And, and I didn't want to be that guy that became an old man the day my son died. I wanted my life to, to feel different and look different at that. I could see in Carl's eyes and his body language that 20 years had passed, but they hadn't softened the edges of that grief for him. And, and it formed this kind of black hole of gloom inside me. I'd been trying for several years to narrow the gap between hope and faith and doubt and all that after losing Mitch. But I saw him suffering 20 years later after losing his daughter, and it just punched me in the gut. And I was starting to wonder after talking to Jack and Carl if maybe – all this concept that I had of finding hope again, maybe it was just hopeless. Maybe it was just made up. And what happened next was the story I really want to tell you today. It took a long time to get here, but here's the, here's what happened next. For several weeks after I had those two conversations, I was super grumpy, and I didn't even realize it. I was in a bad mood. And one morning, Lisa just had enough, and she was like, Hey, Grumpy McGrumperson, I'm trying to cheer you up, and you're in a bad mood, and I don't get it. Like, what's going on with you? So, something is changing the way that you normally operate your life, because I don't. I really try to be, it's going to be okay. I really try to keep an upbeat, positive attitude, because I know that that's how you clear away all that neuroscience junk and get, get, get all this stuff cleared out of your brain so you can try to have a decent life no matter what's happening. And I just had a bad attitude. And I realized that I had a lousy attitude about my whole life because I had allowed two external things, two other people who were hurting and suffering to change how I was feeling. And I realized I've been thinking about their pain and their suffering, and I've been latching my pain and my suffering onto theirs. And I had allowed thoughts to become things. I had allowed the thinking about these external situations that were not actually happening in my life currently a person hurting over losing his losing his brother-in-law and subsequent before that his son and another person hurting over losing his daughter and i was externally allowing their problem to change my life okay i was letting their pain become my pain and it affected my attitude affected my perception of what my life was about and Lisa called me on it. She was like, you have a lousy attitude. Like, yes, we lost a son. Yes, we are processing that. Yes, we are learning how to live in the reality of a world where we don't have Mitch anymore. But you're making a decision, maybe subconsciously, to allow external things to affect your internal state. 
And that it dawned on me that I was letting thoughts become things. I was letting this happen. And here's why it happens, okay? Inside your head is the world's fastest supercomputers, hundreds of millions of neurons and supporting cells, maybe a trillion or more. We're not sure. It's kind of controversial how many cells there actually are. But at least a 100 billion, maybe a trillion, but certainly trillions and trillions of synapses, more than there are stars in the universe. There are connections that connect cells in your brain to one another that allow you to create complex interactions and automate many things like the, the ability for you to breathe when you're not awake like that there's an automated synaptic thing that happens in your brain that involve multiple nuclei in your brainstem that trigger neurons to fire to keep your diaphragm and your breath going even when you're not awake okay and there's a disease where you can have a stroke in your brainstem and knock that automated breathing out and those people can't go to sleep or they stop breathing so they have to be on breathing machines it's called Andine's curse there's automated things that happen and they happen because of synapses but there's also diseases and problems that happen they're called synaptopathies that happen because of bad synapses getting formed or diseases of synapses the way they don't work well Lambert-Eaton syndrome myasthenia gravis are two of these synaptopathies that cause really bad muscle weakness and problems because synapses don't work properly so there are the ability for you to have sick synapses and you can also have lousy attitudes. And if you have both of those two things, then you've got two problems that are affecting your ability to navigate your own life and manage it with good thinking. And there's a there's a famous story in medicine about what we call the two dudes. It seems like almost every time we see a drunk guy in the ER who got in a fight or somebody stabbed him or somebody shot him or something, if you talk to him and say, what happened? Almost every time they say, I was just minding my own business and these two dudes came out of nowhere and beat me up. It's, it's, a, it's a joke. In all of medicine, every trauma surgeon, every emergency room doctor, every neurosurgeon and, and general surgeon and ER doc and resident has heard somebody say that two dudes assaulted them. So there's this long joke of the two dudes are out there terrorizing people all over the country. I've seen them in Oklahoma City and I've seen them in Balad in Iraq and I've seen them in Alabama and I've seen them in Wyoming and I've seen them in Nebraska and I've seen them in Pittsburgh. The two dudes are everywhere. <laughs> it's hilarious because everybody, for some reason, says that there are two dudes causing their troubles. And I realized that day that six synapses and lousy attitudes are the two dudes of the massive thing. They're the two dudes of how we deal with trauma. There are these two problems, lousy attitudes and six synapses. And so when I was dealing with my lousy attitude, I realized that Carl and Jack had given me external influences and inputs into my nervous system. And I allowed, I, I made a synapse between their problem and my problem. And I let my own attitude change because I was ruminating on somebody else's trouble that then I, I sort of adopted and co-opted into my own issue. And I allowed myself to get into a really negative neurochemistry state all over again, even though nothing new had happened in my situation. It had been years since I lost Mitch. We were learning how to live again and process, and we were finding our hope and our peace and our pathway forward again. And I allowed myself to just go down this rabbit hole of being in a bad mood and taking it out on Lisa and being grumpy with my staff and all those things and internally having all these dialogues of why this happened and God doesn't love me and why did I lose, why, 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 why? And it was a lousy attitude. And I'm just here to tell you, friend, this long preamble, we're here at 23 minutes now in this episode on Self-Brain Surgery Saturday, and I'm telling you that whole long story just to tell you this. 
thoughts become things. Okay, the things you think about turn into how your life works. Okay, and at a very high level, your brain controls your neurotransmitter production. Your neurotransmitter production affects hormones and how they are released and in what quantities they are released or not released in your body. Hormones affect every cell in your body and regulate how those cells behave, what proteins they make, how they divide, and what happens to them. And when cells divide, the new cells that are formed out of those cell division processes, mitotic events that occur when your cells divide and create new cells to replace the old ones, those new cells are more like the things that they need to be like to handle the environment that they're in. And a good example of that is when you've got a chronic stress state and you got lots of uh, adrenaline running around and cortisol regulation is happening at different levels and the stress hormones in your bodies are too high, then your cells, when they divide, are born with more receptors for those stress hormones because they realize they're going to be in a more stressful environment and they need to be more sensitive to those stress hormones. So when you divide a cell it responds by creating a new cell that has more receptors to handle the things it's going to be exposed to and less receptors to handle things it's not as well not as often exposed to so what does that mean it means that the things you think about the things you experience in your life and how you process them mentally turns into a change in your neurochemistry, which turns into a change in your hormonal state, which turns into a change in how your cell surface receptors are regulated, which changes the genetic code for how your systems are replicated in the future generations. And here's something fascinating and a little bit terrifying. I just read an article this morning from Scientific America from back in 2020 from a woman who does Holocaust and, and Vietnam PTSD research and they found some remarkable and sort of terrifying things there's some research done with mice where they exposed mice to cherry blossom odors apparently mice are really sensitive to smell right so they would they would let them smell cherry blossoms and as soon as they reacted to the smell they would give them a little shock on their skull and, and cause pain and over time really quickly the mice learned they were male mice they learned that cherry blossom odor produces pain in their skull and guess what happened the DNA of their sperm changed and three generations of offspring of those male mice that had been exposed to the trauma of pain when they smelled cherry blossoms, three generations later, those genetic changes in their sperm cells were still present, which means, and then they, they proved it out functionally too, the third generation of offspring would react with fear and panic and trauma response when they smelled cherry blossoms, even though they weren't getting shocked. Let that sink in for a second. Your, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, was exposed to some sort of trauma, and he learned that something painful happens when a particular event occurs, and genetic changes in his cells down to the sperm level happen, and your grandfather and your father and you have the same genetic reaction to that trauma even though it hasn't happened to you that's called epigenetics by the way that's science of the generational transmission of trauma and the genetics of it so i say all that to say this the things that happen in between your ears in the supercomputer of the brain that you've been given fearfully and wonderfully made those things that happen the things that you think about become things in the real world. 
This is not, we're not talking about self-brain surgery to help you become healthier and feel better and be happier and all those things I've been saying to you for years. I am not a motivational speaker. If I am, I'm a lousy one because I'm telling you, you're going to have trouble. I'm telling you that you can't name it and claim it and wave a wand and get rid of all your problems. You're going to have them. What I'm telling you is there's a way to handle them with great resilience and with great equipoise so that you can manage to land on your feet no matter what happens to you. In spite of the fact that thoughts become things and they change your DNA code and they pass on to your family's generations. There's two scriptures that are fascinating. We talked about this the other day, but there's this idea of generational curses in the Bible. And Lisa calls it generational imprints. And that's a better term. Imprinting is a genetic term. And she says that that, that it's more of an imprinting than a curse. It's not like the devil's out there cursing your family because your parents had some problem. That's not what God means. When he says in Exodus 34, 7, God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds like God is putting his hand on your great grandkids to punish them for something that you did. But that's not what it means. What it means is, and everything in the Bible is deeper than it seems to be on the surface. What it means is when you have something happen to you or you choose a pattern of behavior that's sinful or difficult or or hard or that creates problems in your life like abuse or alcoholism or substance abuse or anything, gambling or whatever, you can actually change your genetic code and predispose your kids to having the same problems that you had. Or if you had a trauma experience and you became a victim, it's well studied now in Holocaust survivors and their offspring and Vietnam PTSD patients and their offspring that you're born with different levels of susceptibility to stress hormones, different levels of cortisol in your saliva, even though you haven't been exposed to the trauma because your mom was or your dad was. It's actually more, um, a little bit more prominent in women and their offspring that there's a little bit more impact. And that makes sense because more than half of your genetic material comes from your parent, comes from your mother than it does from your father because you get all of your mitochondrial DNA from your mom and only half, you get half of your genes basically from your mom and your dad, but a little bit more than half from your mom because you also get all your mitochondrial DNA from your mom. So it makes sense that genetic things that happen to mothers when they're pregnant or even before they're pregnant affect their eggs and that offspring of people whose moms have experienced certain things is a little bit more affected than those whose dads were expect, were exposed to those things. So it makes sense. But what God's saying here in Exodus 34, 7 is the stuff that happens to you affects your generations, okay? It affects your children and your children's children and their children. But the good news is he also says that I visit my blessings on a thousand generations. Like when you get this right, friend, when you learn that what happened to your parents didn't happen to you and you can learn how to change it all of these studies are indicating that those genes can be reversed that changing your life now can unwind some of that generational trauma that's been imprinted into your genetic code some of those things that you inherited from your mom and dad's your baseline responses your baseline genetic ability to handle or not handle things you can change and it starts with changing how you think okay 
you're not stuck with it. That's the bottom line. We always thought that our brains were static. I was taught in all of my neuroscience training, all the way up to the end of my residency in 2001, and three years later, we were taught and we told patients, you're stuck with the brain you have. You better make sure you take care of it. In 2004, they learned about neuroplasticity, and since then, we've learned you actually can make new neurons. You can actually change how your brain functions. You can fix a lot of stuff that happened to your brain before in the past. You just have to learn how to how to react and change it going forward, right? And it's not it's not a joke. It's not just crazy optimism that you can change your brain and you can change your life, but you have to change your mind first. It's all about how you think. So, getting back to the Society of Self Brain Surgeons, this is the high level overview. Remember, I'm going to keep going a little bit deeper, but I want to stop and come back to the surface for you and give you the big picture. In the Society of Self-Brain Surgeons, this group of people around the world that we're getting together to change our minds and change our lives and help our generations be better, in that, we start with an oath. In the first part of the oath, when I go to med school, if you go to medical school, they make you take an oath when you graduate that came basically out of Hippocrates, but it's been modified over the years. It's got all kinds of stuff in it now that wasn't there when Hippocrates first set it down but the oath starts with first no harm primum non nocere okay it starts with don't hurt yourself and don't hurt your patient and don't hurt your patient's family just do your best to never do harm okay so in self-brain surgery lingo we say it this way i will relentlessly refuse to participate in my own demise if you know something is harmful to your brain if you know something is harmful to your thinking then you know that it's going to be harmful to your hormones it's going to be harmful to your cells and your cell surface receptors it's going to be harmful to your offspring cells it's going to hurt your gametes your eggs and your sperm if you're in reproductive years still that changing how you think negatively will change everything about your body and your life and it will affect your generations Okay, and changing how you think positively will make all those things better in some way. It may be incremental, but it will. It's it's biochemically and neuroscience proven fact that you can change your mind and you can change your body by changing how you think. Okay, and the good news is this was in the Bible all along. By the way, we got lots of reasons to talk about, there are lots of scriptures to talk about as we go through all this. But we start with the oath of relentlessly refusing to participate in our own demise, okay? And that leads to the next principle, which is two things that you have to believe with all your heart. One is feelings are not facts. Feelings are neurochemical events in your brain that generate a need, a perceived need for a response, a reaction, okay? But feelings are not facts, and we'll go deeper into that. But you're designed to have certain feelings that are coded to make you think certain things are true. You feel fear, you think there's a bear in the house, you got to run away. You feel fear, you think this bad thing is about to happen to you again that's happened to you before, and you need to run away. You go into fight or flight. Feelings are not facts, though. Sometimes you feel something because something is triggering that feeling, like I just explained to you with with Jack and with Carl. Something outside of me was triggering a feeling that I was having that was generating all kinds of responses in me that weren't based in what was actually happening. Feelings are not facts. And the second thing is, not every thought that you have is true. Thoughts happen electrically in your brain. They happen because of a complex history of you thinking and you experiencing the world in a certain way. And thought production comes from memory 
It comes from chemical events. It comes from all kinds of things other than what's reality and happening right now. And most thoughts are wired negatively automatically, and that's a protective thing. You think that stove's going to be hot, so you don't touch it, even though it's not actually on. But your thought says, don't touch that. It's going to hurt. You got to verify. And that's what I call the the self-brain surgery technique of the bad thought biopsy. The thought biopsy is the first self-brain surgery procedure that we have to learn. I teach it to you in, in Hope is the First Dose. But the thought biopsy gives you this ability to put a little pause between the impulse, the, the, the thing, the event, the thought, the feeling, the stimulus, and the response. So we're going to learn how to respond to the environment and the things that we're happening in our world instead of reacting reflexively to them. And that's the genesis, the first step in becoming a safe and effective self-brain surgeon is to learn that we are going to relentlessly refuse to participate in our own demise. We are going to learn that feelings are not facts, that they're chemical events, and that not every thought is true. And once we're armed with those three things, then we are going to understand that thoughts become things, and therefore we have this great responsibility as self-brain surgeons to make sure that the things that we create in our lives and other people's lives out of our thoughts are good things and not bad things. So here's an example. Don't treat a bad feeling with a bad thing. Don't treat a bad feeling with a bad decision. Okay. Good example. You feel bad. You've had a bad day at work. Your wife left you. You're grieving over your son that died. And you treat that bad feeling with alcohol, with gambling, with Valium, with hydrocodone, with Cheetos, with online shopping, with sex, with inappropriate relationships, whatever. You have this bad feeling and you treat it by some numbing behavior designed to cover up the bad feeling and make you feel less but the problem is that that numbing behavior creates its own set of problems and numbs everything else in your life to the good stuff that's still out there. So you over time become just numb and nothing hurts, but nothing feels good either. And you then are chemically stuck in this loop of needing the numbing behavior to get back to the baseline of not feeling the bad thing that you were trying not to feel in the first place. And before you know it, your entire life is about the thing that keeps you from feeling anything instead of the life that you're supposed to be living to feel everything, right? So a good example of this mantra and this, these core values that we have is to not treat bad feelings with bad decisions. Now imagine if, as a surgeon, if you came in and said, Doc, my arm hurts. And I said, well, I'm sorry, your arm hurts. Let's cut it off. You would think I was insane. I would be a bad surgeon if that was my first response is if something hurts, just chop it out, get rid of it, right? That would be a maniacal and crazy decision because you don't treat a bad feeling with a bad decision. You don't put the wrong operation on a symptom. You make the proper diagnosis, make a good, sound decision about how to treat it in a way that makes the whole organism better and really solves the problem and produces a good outcome, right? You don't just chop it off because it hurts. That'd be crazy. So we don't treat bad things, bad feelings with bad decisions.
And so I, I, I wanted to give you this kind of high-level overview of what self-brain surgery is. It's this idea and understanding and true fact that the way you think changes the way your brain works and changes the way your whole life works. And it comes out of understanding that there is a treatment plan for the massive things that come along in your life. You're not stuck with the hopelessness and despair of knowing that hopelessness is the worst disease that can happen to humans, but you're not stuck there because when you have these massive things, if you have prepared for them, and if you know there's a treatment plan that you can engage and reliably work through to find hope and happiness and health and peace and restoration and and all those things again, then you can be prepared for when those massive things come along to change your mind and change your life. I told you a while ago, the Bible is full of this. Isaiah 26, 3 says, those who have their minds fixed on him, he will keep in perfect peace. Those with sound thoughts, the common English Bible says, those with sound thoughts, you will keep in peace because they trust in you. So what's this mean? It means if you learn how to think better and you let God give you the, the tools and the things in your brain to, to build your life around, then no matter what happens, you won't be thrust into despair and hopelessness because you'll be filled with this inexplicable peace. I told you a while ago, there's basically four ways that people respond to these massive things that happen. And one of them is a group that I call the untouchables. These are the people that seem so resilient that they're able to handle anything that comes along in their life without being cast into the pit of despair. And those are the people we want to try to get to and emulate because he keeps them in perfect peace. Most of us are more like what I call dippers. We hit something hard, it wipes us out for a bit, but we find our feet and find our way back because we've got a treatment plan. And that's what I give you in hope is the first dose. The treatment plan is how you get back there. But the, the bottom line is how you think determines how you live. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Jesus says, out of the treasure of a good heart come good things. Out of the, the badness in a bad heart comes bad things. Basically, if you've got treasure in your heart, if you've got good things stored up inside you, you're going to be more resilient. You're going to be able to handle the hard things that come along. And it's going to be okay. Philippians 4, 6 through 8 is kind of the bottom line for self-brain surgery. He says, he's talking about, he starts with Philippians 4, 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He wants you to learn how to be joyful no matter what you're going through. And then he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's the untouchables. Those are the people who learn how to Give thanks and find gratitude and turn to prayer instead of anxiety in every situation. And they seem to be kind of resilient, right? But for the rest of us, how do we get to that place? Starts in verse 8, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why does he tell you to think on all these good things? I'll tell you why. Because every time there's something bad happening in your life, there's also, at the very same time, a bunch of good things that are still true. And if you can learn not to be dismissive of the hard things, but to be inclusive of the good things too in the midst of those difficult situations, then you can learn that there's still light out there even when it feels dark. There's still hope out there even when it feels hopeless. There's still happiness out there even when everything feels so sad 
then you can learn to change your mind and that will change your whole life. And that, my friend, is what self-brain surgery is all about. That is what the Society of Self-Brain Surgeons is for, this group of people who are coming together to say, I want to be in control of what happens in between my own two ears, and I want to make sure that if I am changing my genetic code with everything I think about, that I want to be in control of that process. I want to let the good physician, the great physician, help me to make better decisions in how I treat my life because that one of the fruits of the Spirit and one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit living inside me is self-control. I want to do that well. And we do that well by the study and application of self-brain surgery and the treatment plan. And we're going to do that together. And hope, my friend, is the first dose. That's coming out in July 25th. But for now, in the meantime, you can know this. Hope is the first dose of the treatment plan that will save your life when you encounter the massive thing. It's self-brain surgery, it's prehab, it's self-brain surgery and rehab. And I'm going to teach it to you all in coming weeks and months. And when the book comes out, you're going to have a manual, a handbook to carry with you and use to help other people. But don't forget the oath. I will relentlessly refuse to participate in my own demise. I will learn to believe with all my heart that feelings are not facts and not every thought that comes into my life is true. And I'm going to learn not to treat bad feelings with bad decisions. And most importantly, I'm going to start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.